When things get darkest, we must be our brightest. We must love our hardest. You're listening to Better, and I'm your host, Mark Brand. I deeply believe that everyone has the power to leave the planet a better place than they found it. In my decades of frontline work, I've seen it happen against all odds in the toughest corners of the world. This show was created as a guide to share stories of resilience and hope from the brightest individuals who have overcome challenges we all face to help us all envision and build a better life. Every week, my incredible guests and I will give you access to the conversations we've been having behind closed doors, away from stages, and away from traditional media. Until now, we share this space with the explicit intention to empower you to be your biggest, brightest, most beautiful self, so we can build a better world together. Welcome to Better. As always, I'm extremely excited to have my guest here today, and... Our guest and I got to meet a few months ago at my favorite climate conference, which is something you can say out loud. (laughs) I do have favorites, and one that I attend every year in Sun Valley, Idaho, run by Christensen Global and our our dear friend Amy Christensen, um, called the Sun Valley Institute. And at that institute, there is a real grouping of people who are doing ground-level work, a grouping of people who have a lot of pie charts and a lot of data uh, that seems to change minute to minute. And then there are people who are creating organizations that help exponentially impact uh, the narrative and the worldview. And in those particular frames, I met Rhett Butler, real name, no gimmicks, who founded Monga Bay, which I was embarrassingly unaware of until Sun Valley. And once I became aware, have spent the last couple months in the hole of getting caught up into the truth of what's going on in many parts of the world in hope and also in we need action. Um, Rhett is an award-winning journalist, the founder and CEO of Monga Bay that I just mentioned, a nonprofit conservation and environmental science news platform. Super important to share what it actually does with over 20 years dedicated to raising awareness and appreciation for wild lands and wildlife, which we will have Rhett define in a moment. Um, Lots more. The resume is very long, but Rhett, welcome. And how do you introduce yourself these days? Uh, well, thank you for that very generous introduction. I just introduced myself as Rhett Butler, the, the founder of Manga Bay. Great. Succinct and to the point and also uh, expected here. And I'm, I'm really happy that you were able to carve out the time for us. Uh, I was impacted by what you shared from stage, of course, and then digging into the things that you've shared over the years. But also, we got a chance to, to break bread, literally, and I got to hear about some of the inception stories of how Monga Bay comes to be. But you started it from uh, our conversation in 99 in college, and you operated it solo for 10 years. And so tell me a little bit, or tell us a little bit rather, about the inception of Monga Bay. What was the impetus for it? What was the lightning bolt? What was the strike? And like, how did it come to be? Yeah, well, um, I had the great fortune of having a mother who's a travel agent and a father who traveled a lot for business. And so that meant growing up, my family prioritized travel and we would go to places like Venezuela instead of Disneyland. Mm. And I was always very interested in herps, so reptiles and amphibians. And in my mind, the most interesting herps were in the rainforest. So I would always ask my parents if we could sometime go to the rainforest. And uh, when I was 12, they indulged me and we went to uh, Ecuador, um, the Ecuadorian Amazon, 
and we stayed uh, in a village that was uh, a fairly traditional indigenous community. And I just had an amazing time in the forest, um, you know, playing with the kids my age, going out looking for frogs, exploring the rivers. So it was really, you know, special introduction to the rainforest, which was only something I'd really read about before that. Um, I came back and a few months later, there was a story in the San Francisco Chronicle about this oil spill that had happened on the Rio Napo, upriver from Red Bend. And so what that meant is that whole area I visited was now coated in oil. And so all I could think about is what had happened to my friends in the forest um, and the animals. And so um, that kind of moved me from being someone who generally appreciated nature and animals to being more aware of environmental issues. Um, the catalyst that moved me to action was uh, happened a few years later when I went to uh, Malaysian Borneo. So um, I was in high school and I went to this you know incredible forest full of all sorts of amazing animals, including great reptiles and amphibians. And uh, you know I have some just amazing memories from hiking around this absolutely gorgeous forest. Um, I came back to the states and uh, kept in correspondence with a the scientist there, and. Um, it was uh, several months later where he told me that the forest had been pulped to make paper. Uh, and now that forest mm-hmm. is an oil palm plantation. And so once that forest was destroyed, I decided I wanted to try to raise awareness about what was happening to rainforests and talk about why they're important. And so when I began at the university, I started writing, writing a book about rainforests. Um, my major had nothing to do with rainforests or ecology. Um, I'm like a math, business, economics. Uh, you know, that was that was my major management science. Um, but I worked on this, um, you know, book on the side. I spent a lot of time in the library speaking with experts. Um, I was able to finish school a year early, thanks to some credit I had from high school. And I spent that extra year working on this book. Um, I found a publisher, went through peer reviews, publisher came back and said, you know, we want to publish this book, but because we're an academic press, we don't have uh, a budget to put pictures in it, or at least nice, you know, colorful pictures. And so there'll just be some grayscale images and this will basically be a textbook. And to me, that really defeated the person I was trying to do what I was trying to do, which was convey the beauty of rainforests and why they should be saved. So I thought, well, I'd write this, I didn't write this book for money. I wrote it for impact. And so I decided to uh, put it on the web so people could read it for free. And I named the website Manga Bay, which is derived uh, from another special place for me, which is this island off Madagascar. So this, this island is covered with rainforest, surrounded by coral reefs and full of all sorts of um, amazing animals. And so I, I put the book up online, but the reality was that I, was, I wasn't going to run a website for a living. And so I, I got a real job and, you know, started doing, you know, the, the eight to eight or whatever Silicon Valley, you know, work schedule. But on nights and weekends, I continued to work on the site and um, it started to go popular. And so by... Um, about mid 2003, um, I decided to put advertising on the website and it started to generate revenue. And so then within about six months, it was equal to about the revenue is equal to about half my take home pay. So I thought, well, this could actually be something I do from, for a living. And so I decided to quit my job, pursue my passion. And that was the origin of Manga Bay. But really it was just a guy in his pajamas in his apartment, you know, writing articles <laughs> and, you know, traveling. It was a very small, um, enterprise. Um, but because I wrote so many articles and I was kind of filling this niche, um, it, it, it kind of, you know, grew a reputation for being a resource for information on, you know, on these issues. And, um, so I started, a, I, one of the first things I did was create a section for children, which I had translated into about 40 languages by native speakers. And then I launched this new service, which uh, is what Manga Bay is most best known for now. 
so that's kind of the the origin story of of how I you know it, it went from an idea to um, you know to, to being a website. Love the the tale of the passion project and also the understanding is like I have to get a real job until this thing takes off and does it does what it's supposed to. But I think the giant gapping in in real information, particularly about things that we find enchanting and other, you had the opportunity to actually just be in right? Like then to see. And so when we see these things from a distance, we always want to understand what's actually happening. And I think since the 80s, 90s, you know, we've heard about the deforestation and the devastation in the rainforest, but it feels like other. And what I really appreciate about your lens and what Manga Bay brings is it's an awareness that it's us. It's, it's just down the street. Why I love what you shared about Manga Bay, but also around your personal story is in particular, this is the story that everybody can relate to. You you take up a charge and you run with that charge and that charge turns into something that has truly impacted the world. And I think my, I think if I had to choose a favorite quote from you, it is in, you were in conversation with Jane Goodall, who's also on your board, who is of course the godmother. She is, she is it. And the quote is, one of the challenges journalists have is confronting a bias towards problems versus solutions. Part of what we need to do is focus on tangible solutions and acts people can take at home. We remind people, yes, there are these global problems, but solutions always start locally. That could be the tagline for this show. And so hearing that is just a reinforcement that those of you listening at home, the action is yours. It is within you. And when we come back, I want to kick us off with another quote, which is one major problem that is a lot of people have been deliberately misled, deliberately misled. We know this, we know it from both sides of the aisle and everybody is weaponizing this language. But I wanna know what that means in, in your voice and how Manga Bay approaches that when we come back. You're on Better with Rep Butler. It is my honor to be here with him and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Better with my guest, Rhett Butler, today. I'm super excited to take this into the pragmatic. And I think because of the basis of Manga Bay and what it reports on and how it reports, what I ended the last segment with, your words of wisdom, were one of the challenges journalists have is confronting a bias towards problems versus solutions. Solutions is my love language on the side note, Rhett. Part of what we need to do is focus on tangible solutions and acts people can take at home we remind people, yes, there are these global problems, but solutions always start locally. And woven in with another quote of yours, which is one major problem is that a lot of people have been deliberately misled. Who is misleading them and why is it deliberate? So I think kind of the best example of deliberate efforts to mislead people is really around climate change. So there's been a lot of money that's gone into sort of these efforts of, I mean, everything from misinformation to sort of like downplaying, you know, the impacts of climate change or saying it's natural and, you know, humans aren't involved to sort of um, casting doubt on re renewable energy. Um, a lot of that's been bankrolled by fo the fossil fuels, fossil fuels industry. And again, this, there's a number of really excellent books and documentaries that, you know, about this, but um, you know, it's a, it's a very real and successful campaign to basically make it so people aren't concerned about climate change or don't believe that it's happening. Right. And 
so again, that's that's a, that's kind of the most stark example, but it also applies to things like you know biodiversity loss or deforestation, you know, or you know various consumer products. Um, there's just this deliberate effort to to mislead people um, so they don't take action or, or worry about the the impacts of of these products. So as you're starting this journey, I think we all have an, an understanding that we're being marketed to or sold to. That's the machine of capitalism. It's how it works. We get that. We know that we're also being fed disinformation and misinformation in all sorts of different ways. But in a hyper-specific way, as you're running Manga Bay, what's the first story that you pull out where you're like, Exxon is doing X to do Y? Like, what is the, the big aha for you where you actually have the smoking gun? Is there a moment that you can recall as a journalist? Yeah. So actually, I mean, for Magabay doesn't, doesn't focus a ton on climate change. We tend to cl- cover climate change through the lens of, you know, of ecosystems or wildlife or mm. indigenous local communities. But I think for, for me, like the most uh, poignant example is really with the palm oil industry. So, so palm oil is this crop that's produced, uh, I mean, 80% of it's produced in Southeast Asia, so Malaysia and Indonesia. And um, the problem is, is that uh, large areas of forest and indigenous lands and peatlands have been converted to oil palm plantations. Um, so it's you know over fifteen million hectares, or you know if you convert that to uh, you know it's like forty million acres of, of wow. land that's been converted. And 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 it's it's contra- you know so it's, it's obviously controversial because it results in deforestation. It um, there's a lot of human rights abuses and, and other things. And so I've been reporting on palm oil for you know since like the mid 2000s or even earlier. And um, the industry has its own you know uh, marketing <laughs> like apparatus that targets journalists, but also puts out a lot of misinformation. And so I've, you know, I, I've been sort of in the crosshairs, um, not so much now because I do less reporting, but, you know, back like 10 years ago, I, I was considered an enemy of the palm oil industry, especially, you know, the Malaysian palm oil industry, because they have kind of the most sophisticated, um, I would say, green ra- greenwashing apparatus. And so they would come after me personally and say that I was being paid by big oil <laughs> to, you know, wow. to diminish palm oil. Or like the American soy or corn industry was bankrolling me to to, 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 <laughs> to, you know, to go after palm oil. And it's funny because if you actually read Manga Bay, you'll see like a, a lot of stories about the environmental impact of, you know, American corn or, or soybeans or whatever. So there's just, you know, we're doing the same amount of coverage on those other topics. They just ignore that and focus uh, and try to go after me however they can to sure. just diminish us as a news source. And so... Um, yeah, there's been like a lot of, I mean, back then there were just like a lot of social media attacks and they would run op-eds in newspapers, you know, saying that I was, you know, corrupt or whatever, being paid by these industries. Um, yeah, I've been confronted in person by people. Um, but yeah, I mean, the smoking gun is when you go and do the due diligence and, and you know, sometimes these campaigns are a little sloppy. So if you look at like the metadata on like a document that's uploaded, you can see like who actually created the document. And then you can see that they are, you know, they belong to a company or they're part of a family. It's like a palm oil family. And so, you know, just kind of that forensic effort, you can kind of uncover who's behind these campaigns. And you think with that amount of wealth that they would know that. (laughs) There'd be an understanding to you're pointing the finger at yourself. But I want to go back a step, which is the confrontation in person, because I think that this is incredibly valuable as a tool, particularly as we're having confrontations consistently on this continent now on rights of all sorts 
and it's only going to exponentially increase as as these problems do, right? As climate increases, as gun safety and laws over people's bodies, as that continues, we continue to be in the front lines of these conversations. How do you respond in the face of something that you know is evil and is really trying to slander you and, and take away your livelihood? What what happens in that moment? Well, I mean, so there's, there's lots to unpack there. So in terms of in terms of how how to respond, I mean, so the way I traditionally responded was with you know with with data and, or information, but that that was a different media landscape. Today, it, it's more about narrative than facts, and for for me, it's very frustrating because we're very you know fact driven, and so we have to you know build a narrative around the facts. But the problem is, is that a lot of people are convinced not by facts, but by, by, you know, just like whatever the story is or whatever they want to believe. And so that that's frustrating. But in terms of like what happened in this specific instance, so I was speaking at a conference um, in Malaysia and um, I got in an elevator and this, um, this, this man came in with two bodyguards. They're, they're Gurkha, the Gurkhas is how they're referred to in, in, in that part of the world. Um, and, uh, you know, closed the door and then he came up to me and started poking me in the chest, telling me to stop telling lies about palm oil. Wow. And my response, yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was kind of funny or a joke at the time. Uh, I didn't take it that seriously. I was kind of like, well, I'm not telling lies about palm oil industry. I'm reporting on, you know, the impacts of this. So I had like a very matter of fact response that was, you know, I thought was rational and, and whatever, but, um, you know, and then the elevator door opened and they left and it was just me. And I was like, Oh, that was kind of a funny experience. Um, I later heard, heard from a, a state department official when I recounted this story, that was actually probably a somewhat dangerous situation because an executive who has personal Gurkhas is actually a very powerful person in Malaysia and mm-hmm. probably can act with a fair bit of impunity. So, um, I mean, I doubt like I was in any physical danger, but it was something that I kind of dismissed as being, you know, like kind of funny or joke or whatever, but it was actually probably pretty serious. Um, so that was kind of like the first time where I was kind of confronted personally, um, you know, by palm oil rather than just like online or, you know, you know, like in the newspaper or something. Certainly. Um, yeah. And then I've had, you know, in the field, I definitely had, you know, people fire warning shots when I'm taking photos of something, um, you know, in like Indonesia, um, yeah, I, I don't know how I, it's hard to judge like how dangerous that is. But the point is, is that there are like real threats and it's very dangerous for frontline environmental defenders. So whether they're journalists, they're uh, environmental activists, um, indigenous peoples who are defending their territories, um, lots of people are killed every year for trying to defend the environment. And, um, you know, it's a very serious problem. There was just a very high-profile murder of a journalist and an indigenous advocate in um, in the Amazon that got a lot of press. Um, unfortunately, you know this is not uncommon. We all caught that story, and I'm sure listeners here were also catching it. And we know from our time that that, like you just said, happens consistently and pretty constantly. And there's very little repercussion. And when you talk about the impunity of an official, that's just real. That's just real. If you were in a country where that person has higher stature, the narrative matters more than the facts and the narrative can very easily be modified. And so you've definitely been on the front lines and putting yourself in, in harm's way to get these stories out. And I think I want to circle back as we move into the next segment uh, with a thank you 
first of all, because I think what we need to use as a lens is the work that you do and the work that other climate justice advocates and frontline people do and photojournalists telling these stories, whether it's war zones, whether it's oil field spills, whether whatever that may be, it's all one backyard. It's all one place that we're living in and we lose sight of that. It's like, well, that doesn't impact me. There's a whole ocean in between and it very much does. So thank you for your work, uh, first and foremost. And then the quote that I want to bring to the surface here is, as we see the compounding impacts of climate change, we don't have a big window of time and it's getting shorter every day. Part of effective storytelling is giving people something real and meaningful they can do in their lives about the issues they care about. And that's our role as storytellers. I think that entire thing is what I want to unpack when we come back. You are on better with my guest, Brett Butler. Stay alive. Welcome back to Better with my guest, Brett Butler, today. And I have so many. The problem with the show for me is I have so many tributaries leading off of questions I want to ask you personally. And then I'm also mindful that our time is finite. And it really is, literally. And so taking us back to the quote, as we see the compounding impacts of climate change, we don't have a big window of time. Not on the show, not on this planet. And it's getting shorter every day. Part of effective storytelling is giving people something real and meaningful they can do in their lives about the issues they care about. I would love to hear from you. This is a show based on tools as well as story because we know those two things weave together beautifully to help people act. What do you think right now as we sit are the things that people can do in their own lives to make the most impact in this short window of time, right? Well, I mean, so one of the really simple things that anyone can do is just be informed. So really just try to be informed on the, the products you buy and decisions you make. Um, so that's everything from, you know, where you shop, the, um, types of food you eat, um, who you vote for, um, what kind of, if, if you drive a car, what kind of car you drive, how much you travel. So that's really a fundamental thing. Um, just first and foremost, it sort of under underlies everything else. Um, then the second thing would just be um, then tell people and, and, and speak out. So that might be you know writing a letter to um, or or you know or a comment uh, on a, a company that's sourcing their palm oil. Just ask ask you know where are you getting your palm oil from, and you know do you know? And so just by asking that question, it sends a message to the company that, oh, consumers actually care about this. It's not just, you know, some like radical activist in an orangutan suit that's, you know, that cares about this. This is actually like people who are buying my product. And if they hear from enough people, they'll start to make change, um, you know, or, or, they'll, or they'll engage in greenwashing. But either way, if you're asking those questions, you know, it's an important step. Um, it's been really encouraging to see um, youth activism kind of blossom mm-hmm. um, recently and, and having, you know, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of young people marching in the streets sends a really powerful message. But the problem is, is that in places like the U.S., we're still not seeing really any meaningful action from policymakers. Um, and the problem that we have is that, you know, we might have a president that want that, you know, that has, you know, wants to make change. But the way the political system works in the United States is that it requires a much broader base support to actually drive change because the president can't just decree something and have it, have it be, you know, 
that's how it's going to be. Sure. And so you really need sort of that, that really broad based support, whether it's, you know, co- you know, company CEOs that are saying like, okay, my customers care about this, um, to politicians being like, you know, I look like a, a you know, I, I look really bad because all this embarrassing information is coming out about, um, you know, about my stance on something. So, I mean, those are some like very basic things that I think, you know, almost anyone can do. So I would say, you know, those are good starting points. I think that that being informed part is critical. And I think the other part is understanding where you're getting that information. Because as you say, if we're being deliberately misled consistently, right, and we're being fed, we ingest socials. And so in socials, promoted tweets, promoted Instagram posts, promoted Facebook posts, as we saw with the election a few years back, those things are really coming at us rapid fire, particularly for folks who don't feel like they have the bandwidth to be as informed as they would like to. If the mainstream news is also giving us those same promoted tweets, essentially distilled, how do we go about being informed better? Aside from, of course, everybody hit that subscribe on Manga Bay, but outside of your platform, do you have others that you could point to or other individuals that you think are a guiding light in this time of misinformation? Yeah, I mean, this is a major problem and it's not just for environment, it's for basically all issues. Um, yeah, I personally feel like social media has kind of destroyed nuance, um, which is, you know, really important to understand, you know, to understanding how the world works. Um, so, I mean, there's, you know, a lot of great sources out there, um, you know, everything from, you know, the New York Times to Washington Post to sort of like mainstream media outlets that are doing, you know, good coverage of these issues you know, to more niche outlets like Grist, uh, you know, which is covering you know, a lot of climate issues. Um, but I think like part of it is just trying to understand like what are the elements, like if you, if you see a piece of, if you see news on, on the internet, like how do you go about discerning whether it's real or not? And I think not enough people are asking that question. They just like see something that, you know, catches their eye in their feed and they just share it without, maybe without reading it or trying to verify it. So I would say before you share something, actually read it and try to understand it and do your own kind of vetting rather than just kind of blindly sharing. Cause that's, that's led to so many problems. It's just misinformation that gets shared because there's like a, you know, like a catchy headline or like, you know, a cool image or, or something like that. And as a, you know, as a journalist, it's very frustrating because we can tell people aren't reading content sometimes like they will, you know, like a platform like Facebook, you'll see comments pop up, which is like, oh, you know, why didn't you talk about this? Well, it's like, actually, if you read the second sentence of the article, it talks <laughs> about that, but you just didn't bother. You just, you know, looked at the headline and then passed judgment or made a decision off it without reading anything. And right. so again, I mean, this applies to all a wide range of issues. It really does. And so I think, you know, the takeaway there and the distillation of that is simply read more. And then, you know, take that lens of, is this, is this really real? And I, you know, I'm running death hoaxes through my brain right now because they're just so wild and they, they get away so quickly. And it is the, the want and the need to be seen as being in the know is actually creating the opposite, right? Because it's a timing game. It's like, oh, so-and-so died if I post this first or this is happening in this crisis. If I post this first, it looks like I care the most or I am the most in the know which has created this whole huge cultural like tidal wave of that. And then you have a, well, that information's already gone out or this has already been shared and this is what that looks like versus doing the actual diligence, which doesn't take that much time. I, I love how Medium is set up. This is a four minute read to, to like set expectations that you're going to be able to get through it. <laughs> it's like, yeah, we, 
you, you only need seven minutes to read this nose to tail. Do you have that? So really outside of it is like making the time to do it, right? Yeah. And there's also like, there, there's kind of like no accountability either because everything is kind of like in the moment. And so even if you, if you, if you post something, you know, like a death hoax, like five minutes from now, no one remembers you posted it because it's like instant gratification, partial attention. Um, so there's like no downside. You see it from politicians who just like post crazy stuff in order to get their name in the news. And then, you know, it builds their, their profile. And so, and there's there, so the, like, <laughs> it feels like shame is gone and there's no repercussions for any sort of bad behavior anymore or misinformation. Absolutely correct. It, it feels like, you know, we used to in the eighties and early nineties laugh at this type of reality, which would be, you know, Jerry Springer, or Maury Povich, whatever that may be that, that felt like a sideshow and the sideshow has taken main stage and it feels like this normalization of insanity. And so to try and get any foothold, obviously our work in poverty or homelessness and the work that we do around food and food education and justice and sovereignty around these things, it feels like, you know, somebody will, get, will hit a chord with someone. They're like, wait, we got them. And then two seconds later, it's definitely on to the next thing. So having sustained action for, for us, the way that we found the best way to do that with our organizations is having people physically touch the work, like being physically engaged. Um, which has been the opposite of how we tried to do things before, which is like, if we can just get the message to people, then they will act independently. And I found personally in the last five to six years in particular is like, I need to have actual people touching the work, cooking for people, feeding them, being in the street, being with us, because that leads a real lens of real impact versus the spin and the spiral of just ingesting information consistently, but not actually ingesting it. It's, It's the fast food versus food food of information. It's like, it looks and tastes like it, but it's not actually food. Yeah. And I also feel like, you know, really getting down and doing the work, it, it kind of overcomes some of that stigma, hmm. um, you know, where people might make assumptions about, you know, who, who you're helping, but when they actually are in the field working with people, they can say, oh, like these aren't, these aren't, these aren't the people who've been dressed up in a certain way by the media or, you know, by social media. Like I can actually see and interact with these people and, and understand like these issues and create that connection, which is really important as that nuance. I think so. And then it allows you to also have a baseline understanding physically in, in your parasympathetic nervous system as well. When you go back and you're digesting information, you have something to bounce it off of. You're like, wait, my experience was different than that. That's really interesting. Uh, And so that's your travel and the inception story of Mongo Bay is that it's like, I've been there and witnessed this firsthand, the loss of my friends in this, this forest. And so being in action is incredibly important too. folks. We are on better with my guest, Rhett Butler. When we come back, we're going to dig into honoring indigenous people and practices. The youth will lead and all sorts of other fun stuff. Can't believe we're already through three segments. We'll be right back with you. Folks, welcome back to Better. And I want to take this last segment on the radio, if you're with us, and spend time on one of our favorite topics uh, and take a moment to acknowledge that I'm recording today from the unceded territories of the Squamish, Musqueam, Snohomish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations, amongst others. And this quote from Rhett, it says, if we look at where most wildlife and wild lands are in the world these days, it's in places where there are indigenous and local communities. 
And there's a reason why those forests are still standing. Whereas in Europe and the United States, there are far fewer indigenous peoples now. That's a lot to unpack and just a very succinct statement in of itself. Let's dig into that a little bit in your frontline experience everywhere in the world. And what do you think that we can actually do in the vein of action in Europe and the United States to right these wrongs? Well, so it's been interesting because, you know, Manga Bay focuses a lot on conservation, which is, you know, a very specific segment, but it intersects very directly with uh, indigenous peoples and local communities. And so the historical approach for conservation is um, putting land off limits. So it's like dispossessing indigenous peoples and local communities from their land. So like, you know, back you know, in Europe, the United States, that meant, you know, taking lands, like the nobility taking lands and, um, you know, for hunting or, you know, like walking in the park or whatever, forcing the local people, the local people of the land and it being a very, you know, exclusive enterprise. Um, And so towards the, I would say like the late, the late um, 20th century, um, that started to shift and that shift is really, uh, accelerate, I'd say in the last five to 10 years where conservation is now recognizing, uh, you know, our approach has had, you know, modest results or like we have, we aren't solving like the climate crisis or biodiversity crisis through kind of the current approach. Uh, let's like reevaluate this. Oh, and it turns out as we're doing this research that, um, land indigenous territories have lower rates of deforestation than a lot of protected areas. Like, why is that? Mm. Uh, and like trying, you know, and, and just kind of coming to the realization that um, these communities, whether it's, a, you know, whether, you know, th- their objectives aren't conservation, but by virtue of how they live their lives and, and manage their lands and, and, their, and, their, and their, their waters, um, the outcome is good for biodiversity and the climate. So they're natural allies. Um, and so like big conservation groups are, are realizing that we can't make these people, you know, we can't make them others. We can't, um, you know, alienate them or make them the enemy. Like they're, they're, they're part of this and, you know, and their innovations and knowledge is really critical and can help us be more effective. And so this, again, this is a transformation that's really happening in the conservation space, but I think also applies to a lot of other areas and that, you know, applies to social justice and, um, and so it's this, this realization of the value of the contributions from these these communities, um, everything from their practices to their knowledge. And so, um, you know, I think it's it, it's it's a really exciting time in terms of seeing this transformation happen. I love to hear that, and I love to hear that lens from a global perspective. And what we often say over here is, we had it right; we just came in and messed it all up. And it's time to return to where we had it in time to honor and be symbiotic versus other, right? It's not extraction. It has to be living, living in unity. And so I love all of those lenses. And I, I, there's one thing that I really want us to, to share in these last remaining minutes that we have. You told me a story over lunch um, around the exponential impact of covering a story. And it included the delisting of a company on the stock exchange. Would you share that with our guests today? Yeah, sure. So a lot of the time people aren't sure about the impact that journalism has. And, you know, from our standpoint as a nonprofit media outlet, you know, we, we, it's important for us to show impact. And so it is mm-hmm. nice to have these examples. And so one of my favorite stories is from, began in 2014. Um, at the time, 
uh, well, I guess I'll start with the company. So this company had an IPO in London, which means they listed their shares. Um, this is a period of time where kind of the commo- most commodity prices were going down. The exception was cacao. And so this was like one of the only pure play cacao companies. And so investors were interested in it. It also had a pretty good story. It was, you know, producing cacao. It said it was producing cacao sustainably, you know, like supporting local communities. So it was like a nice story. So that's happening like in the financial world, like in the Manga Bay world, we were using satellite data to monitor what was happening in forests worldwide. And we saw these pink polygons popping up in the Amazon, the proving Amazon, which is most biodiverse part of the Amazon rainforest. And these pink polygons are indicative of, of, of tree cover change. And so we started mm-hmm. to dig into it. And it turned out that this company that had the IPO was actually clearing this biodiverse forest in the Amazon. And so we started to you know dig into the story um, and um, you know we were preparing to publish and then the you know the company sent their lawyers after us they tried to shut us down we went back to the lawyers and said hey look we've got the best science you know in the world that's documented this history um, and it's all captured by satellite and so we went ahead and we published the story um, once the story came out it got a lot of attention other media outlets covered the issue um, activists started doing campaigns around it um, fast forward two years the company was delisted from London Stock Exchange. So the reason that's important is the company had been planning to uh, raise additional capital to clear more forest. So the intention was to clear about 100,000 hectares, about 250,000 acres of forest for oil palm plantations and more cacao. And so by that story coming out and then all the activism and other other people who were involved with this, um, you know, it, it avoided that 100,000 hectares of forest being cleared, which is about 30 million tons of CO2 emissions. So Mangabe helped plant the seed. I mean, we are not taking credit for everything that happened, but we were part of this ecosystem that led to this outcome. And so for that reason, it's, you know, it's very exciting to just see how these things can, you know, can develop. And it's very serendipitous because you don't know where it's going to go, but it does show that journalism can contribute to real world impacts. Yeah. And so the first time you told me this story, my response was the same. So allow me to reiterate my response. Yes, Manga Bay was directly responsible for that because just Manga Bay allows other news outlets to use its information, its storytelling, its research, its data, its science for free, which is so incredible. That's saying like, I created this open platform of we've done all the hard work for you, Washington Post. (laughs) Here's the article. And you just allow people to aggregate that and use it, which created the groundswell that created the defunding of this project and saved that amount of land. And I want to just then reground in 25 years old, Rhett is working nights and weekends to create this thing in Silicon Valley. Your first hire is your sister. And now you're... 500 correspondents, 70 countries, three dozen staff doing exactly this work. This is the tip of the spear. This is the stuff that I know, I'm sure it feels very normalized to you after 20 years, but to somebody who is a gigantic advocate and hoper, hoper is a word that I just made up, there's an apostrophe in there, of this kind of work, that we will see critical mass, that we will see narrative and true storytelling change the face of this planet for the positive and for the better and save the biodiversity for generations that can explore it, like your first encounter with an orangutan, my first encounter with a black mamba in Nigeria. I want other people to have this feeling so that they know what they're protecting, and they can't if there's nothing left to protect. 
So let me say one more time, thank you for your work. Thank you for leading this organization along with incredible and dedicated people putting their actual lives at risk. And thank you for spending this time with us here today, Rhett. It's, it's been a real honor. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah. Well, you are going to be back. You're on the hook now. This is how this goes. Folks, if you are listening on the radio, this has been better with my guest, Rep Butler. All the links to Manga Bay will be in all of the socials and all of the posts here. Please do support independent and real journalism. It matters now more than ever. If you are on the podcast with us, we are about to continue. If you're not, why aren't you? Make sure to get over and subscribe on all the different platforms. Okay, folks, you know how this goes. We, we are now into what we like to call the extra innings. Um, and I want to talk more with Rhett about the progression of this thing. What we've heard so far is all about what, what operates, why it matters, who's going to help us, narrative, storytelling, the youth, all of that. But what I want to hear also, because I'm still stuck <laughs> with the bodyguards <laughs> in the elevator. Um, and because I've been in those experiences, I know what that feels like viscerally. Is there any point that you're like, okay, this is too much and I got to give up in these last 20 years? Um, not so much from situations like that. It's been just more like uh, the transition to running a nonprofit is very different. So that was a decision where I had to move away from what I love to do, which is being a journalist and reporting for front lines to being basically like an administrator and fundraiser. And so there's mm -hmm. times that sort of like on the administrative side where it's just like, there's just so much you have to manage. And it's like, I didn't start this necessarily to become a manager. Um, that being said, I mean, there have been times where I've been in the field and things have just gotten so difficult where it's kind of like, why am I doing this again? This is just, you know, a struggle. But then I realized, oh, well, you know, it's like the United, it's like that story about the cacao company. Oh, it actually leads to real world impact. So, yes. yeah, I mean, there've been times that have been tough. Um, you know, there've been moments that have been dangerous, but, um, ultimately because I'm pursuing my, my passion and something that I just feel like is really important, um, that overrides everything else eventually. And, you know, I just, I just pull through. So, um, I don't know if that's, <laughs> you know, the best answer, but that's kind of the reality of, of how I navigate these things. I'm sure it's actually one of the most relatable things to everybody who's listening right now. And for me, I'm, I'm like, I love hands-on tools. I love hands-on microphones. I love that part. I love doing the work that's there. But I do spend 90% of my time managing people and being an administrator and have for 10 years. And it's, it's a really tough thing because that is the service. That truly is. Like, if you want things to be successful, there needs to be many, many, many more use. That really, that's got to be it, right? Yeah. And if you want to have impact, then you need to scale well beyond yourself. So like, I don't have any training as a journalist. Um, so what I did is I created a journalism organization and then hired people who are much better journalists than I could ever be, <laughs> you know, to, to do this work. And so, you know, and it's like, you know, I, it's everything about Manga Bay. Like I, yeah, you know, I have no qualifications to do anything I do, but you know, part, part of it is I, I find really good that I then find the right people who can do a better job than I could have done. And then, you know, that's how you scale your impact. Yeah, for certain. And then also knowing where your skill sets do lie. People are coming to work for you that may have a little bit more of the skill skill set, like the hard skills, if you will, um, because they understand your unwavering commitment through your leadership and what, what that looks like. And so in this particular part of your career, family, man, all of those things, what's your focus? Like, what are you focused on? 
And what do you think is the best use of your time in a manga bay's voice? Well, so on the manga bay front, it's really about trying to figure out where it can have the highest marginal impact. Um, so it's, it's looking at markets like, you know, like India, for example. So India has over a billion people, has a lot of environmental issues, uh, has some really positive success stories. So how do like, so if we're, if we're talking about like how, where can journalism have impact? Well, India looks like a market, which is important. And so then I have to say like, okay, it's an important market. How do we actually do this? So how do we find the resources? How do we find the people? How do we make this a reality? And Mm so, you know, I launched the India program in late 2017 and, you know, the first step was English, then Hindi, but there are a whole bunch of language, there there are a whole bunch of languages in India that have more than hundred million speakers and we're not in those languages yet. So how do we, how do we do that? And so it's really, you know, focusing on, um, I sort of know how to, you know, like create the infrastructure and build, you know, I guess the beast, but then it's like, how do we actually then bring that to key markets where we can have impact? Um, and so there's some, some markets that look really interesting, like China, but China's a difficult market because of, you know, the political situation and how the internet works. So if we want to work in China, it's like a very different model. And so we haven't expanded. We haven't done that much in China. I mean, I tried like 15 years ago, but haven't tried done that much lately because it's just not, it's not, it's not a place where we feel like we can have impact. So we're focusing on other, other geographies. And so that's really, you know, where I feel like I can have, the biggest, um, you know, effect in the world. Um, you know, now I do have a family, so it's, it's, you know, balancing, you know, what I do with, you know, how, how I, uh, you know, spending time with my family, but ultimately like what I'm doing is in the interests of my family, um, Mm -hmm. in terms of creating, of helping, you know, sustain a a healthy planet that we actually want to live on. And so, um, but yeah, it, it is definitely a balancing act. And I think in that particular sentiment, it's a big one. And was one of the reasons I was most excited to talk to you today because climate despair, we do a lot of work on mental health. And climate despair amongst my team members is that, I mean, it's number one. Whenever I ask folks, like, what, what, what are they worried about? And it used to be a lot of, like, you know, what's my financial future look like? Will I ever own a house? Do I have enough, you know, support in these ways? And as a Boston leader, you're always like, cool, let's make sure everybody's got a living wage and they have full physical, mental, dental, you know, mental health supports and all of those things. But there are certain things that we just can't support. And with our actions, you know, we're doing our absolute best. But how do you manage personal, interpersonal, organizational and the responsibility of messaging around climate, you know, despair that's so very real right now. I mean, it's, it's very challenging, um, especially as, you know, the impacts of environmental degradation become more clear. I mean, every day you look, you look in the news and there's some crazy thing happening. And um, I completely understand why people have despair and, you know, the political trends are not great, especially in like the United States. Um, so, my problem is I, I'm an, I, I tend to be optimistic. So I, I tend to look for like upside, which I realize is not helpful for most people. Um, because, <laughs> uh, cause you gotta like look at the world through rose tinted glasses. But that said, I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I've obviously just handicapped myself in terms of like, you know, talking about this, but there are some reasons for optimism, um, that we've touched on, but you know, there's been this incredible shift in sort of like energy usage and production, in the past five years that went way beyond what anyone could imagine. So obviously, okay. you know, 
renewable energy is is a small part of of the transition that needs to happen, but it's significant. I mean, another thing I would call out would be the recognition of indigenous and local communities in um, you know driving in in, in in having solutions and the knowledge to to address these challenges. Um, but again, I mean, these are just one-offs and like the overall picture is, is pretty scary. So, I mean, in terms of how we navigate this on the team, I mean, you know, certainly on our team, we have a lot of people who are very concerned about this. And then, you know, that, you know, that informs, I mean, that trickles out, you know, in our, in, in what we produce on Manga Bay and into the wider world as well. And so one of the things we try to do to not be the most depressing site on the internet is to actually look at what those solutions are, you know? So, um, you know, and as I said before, I think journalists uh, sort of have a predisposition to, to focus on the negative, um, mm. rather than the positive, because I, I mean, you know, for whatever reasons, but you know, what, one of the, one of the things we found is that if, if, if we approach a story framed from a solution standpoint, it, um, you know, can result in a very different, you know, outcome. That said, it is harder because you have to deal with, uh, you want to be sure you're not greenwashing or putting forth, uh, you know, just like PR or false solutions. So it requires more due diligence to determine whether it is actually a solution. But putting out those hopeful, hopeful solutions can have this catalytic impact because other people like embrace those ideas and those, you know, those ideas spread. And so um, you, you can have these very tangible real world impacts from sort of that solutions orientation without necessarily, you know, adding to the anxiety and, and sort of depression around the issue, you know, the climate issue. Yeah. Well, we know that fight, flight, or freeze, if we just continue to play into those things, which is what almost the entirety of mainstream media does because it gets more column by and people love it. You know, they, they love to hate it. If we play into those things, action's impossible. It's impossible when we're overwhelmed to do anything period, right? We just literally freeze and then go into one of our vices. And that vice could be doom scrolling. It could be, you know, the ingestion of social media it could be overeating and all of the other addiction patterns because we don't know how to, to do things. So the work of the optimist and of those hopeful lenses, particularly with the scientific back is critical, critical. And so I don't think there's anything rose colored about it. It's you're very specifically choosing out things that we need to focus on. It's like, let's focus on these good things. Let's work on these good things to balance out. Like if we already understand what our consumption is doing, well, we can't do anything about it unless we see what the other side of that is, right? If we say recycling plastics no longer important, what we need to do is get rid of the major fossil fuel companies. Well, we know that. But also recycling plastic is helpful. There's other things that we, we, we don't disregard one to do the other. And I think there can also, and you know this, you know, very strongly is, Two things are true at the same time. Yeah. There has to be. And I think like, and again, I don't know how helpful this is for people, but I think sometimes if you can do little, there, there's small little things that you can do that can make a, a little difference. And so sometimes it can be, if you look at the whole problem, like, you know, it's overwhelming. But if you look at just one thing, like, can I eliminate single use plastic from my life? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, can I, you know, buy organic food or you know whatever it is like those small little things are very achievable but they can add up um and it's not just you know it's not like letting the big polluters off the hook or anything like that that's still important but in terms of like trying to navigate this from your own mental health perspective um starting with small things you can actually do and sort of like check off and, and kind of move forward on um and i mean and you know 
with Manga Bay, I mean, I didn't set out to try to create like a global um, environmental news organization. I, I just cared about rainforests and, you know, decided to write something and post it on the internet. And it kind of built off that. So, you know, I think it was beneficial that I didn't have, that I didn't have sort of that, that, that big vision because it had been overwhelming. I said, well, where do I, where would I start or how do mm-hmm. I do this? And so I just achieved little things along the way. And then they kind of add up and build on each other. And, you know, you wake up 20 years later and. <laughs> and you're saving you know, quarter million hectares at a time. Like that's literally yeah, it. That. <laughs> that, oh, <laughs> oh, I'm, I, I want to edit out that deflection so bad, but I absolutely will not. And so, look, I think this is the story. And this is what I, every single guest we bring on here who also happened to be all in that level of humility is it started with something I was deeply connected to and passionate about. And I didn't say I'm going to single-handedly change the world because that's just an impossible statement. What I said was I want to make the world a kinder or gentler place or at least my direct community or I want to be able to, to share these things. And authenticity and critical change happens in that way. It just it scales up in that way naturally. And I think that we're particularly, you lived in it. I lived in it for a little while too. And that Silicon Valley mind state of like, I am chasing the next unicorn only. That is my only goal versus the, can I create something that has this beautiful and well-rounded impact? It takes time. So why I'm happy you keep saying it and I'll keep saying it every day is the organization you've created is 20 years in, mine is 12 and I feel like we're at inception. Like I feel like we, we as an organization are just warming up. And it's like, you know, when you make these plans, it can't be in six months, this is what's going to happen that will be the biggest of impacts. Like to work with deeply sensitive communities, particularly indigenous communities, you got to keep showing up for a very long time to build that trust and that accountability. And what we see is so many people riding in on the white horse and saying, I'm going to solve this thing because I have a check. And I can't point to a single example where that's worked. So I think that, you know, that the time spent, the intentionality, starting where you start, starting small and, and truly saying, I'm going to continue to give energy to this is important. And so as, as we come into the last few minutes here, is there anything else that you really want to share and that you want people to know um, that you have a unique lens on that you think can be helpful to them in this time? I mean, I would just, uh, we, we talked about this in the radio segment, just the importance of, of trying to discern your information sources and, you know, whether it's, it's, it, whether they're good and then thinking about before you, you share something on social media, it's just, it's, it's so important for all aspects of all of our work. Um, that would just, I guess I'd reiterate that. I think it's a, a beautiful point to, to close us out here today. And I, uh, I kept one quote in the chamber here because I think it, it summarizes from a lens and, uh, it really helps to frame what the work is. And so it's from Jane Goodall again, uh, your board member and our, our global leader in this work uh, amongst a few matriarchs of this, this incredibly important movement. And her quote is, I've been so impressed by Manga Bay for so long, there's always a balance between telling all the horrors that are going on and balancing it so that people don't get so depressed that they give up. Because if we give up, now we are doomed. There is still hope where a different future awaits us. And I want that next to my bedside. <laughs> I want to read that one every day. And I hope that this interview and the time that you've spent um, 
with us today is able to do exactly that for folks because it certainly has for me, Rhett. And I really appreciate your time. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a great conversation. Yeah, brother. Well, I look forward to connecting again here and, uh, of course, following daily through Manga Bay. Folks, again, all the links are in the bios and uh, in the show notes. We are here every single week bringing you this information. Uh, and so share and spread it as far as you can. I, in admission of my own ignorance of not knowing about Manga Bay prior to the last couple of months, I can tell you it has opened my eyes to an entire different world of hope, which I really needed. And so please do share this with folks that you believe could use that. I think is everyone. Uh, thanks again for your time. You've been on Better with Rhett Butler. Thanks again, Rhett. Thank you.